Please turn with me to Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I hope you'll keep that passage open this morning as we are in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, beginning at verse 35 there. We are back in Mark. We spent the the whole of the beginning of the year in the Gospel of Mark. It took us a good while to get through the first four chapters, and here we are at the end of chapter 4. And the last thing that we read together was Mark chapter 4, verse 34. The second half of that verse says this, privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. You see, this morning, we have to remember and note that the, really the story of the gospel account is that Jesus desires his disciples to know him. They desire them to know him and to know his gospel, know what he has done on their behalf, that they would know redemption. This affects the way that we open up our Bible together. As we open up our Bible, we open up the scriptures in the expectation that we would be confronted with the Jesus who is and the good news that he has done. We expect the Lord to explain himself and the truth of his gospel to us. In our passage this morning that was just read to us, we find Jesus sleeping. He's sleeping. You know, the Jesus that wants to explain everything to his disciples is sleeping. But the fact that he tells us he wants to explain everything to them tells us he may be sleeping, but he's not aloof. It's not that he doesn't care. You see, Jesus doesn't seem to be, in our passage this morning, he doesn't seem to be experiencing the same trial that all the other men are experiencing. Right there in that, he's with them, but he's having a different experience. And that tells me that Jesus knows something and Jesus is operating in light of something that the disciples don't yet fully understand. So whatever this passage is, it would seem that it is Jesus teaching his disciples who he is. I know that's what I went into the passage expecting that Jesus would tell us, us church, who he is, what he has done on our behalf. At the center of our passage this morning is a lesson that the Lord is explaining to his disciples that through their experience of a very real trial and their experience of of suffering and fear, right there in the middle of that experience, they also ought to experience his presence in the midst of it. 
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray as your disciples that you would explain to us. God, we confess that that many in this room could not only explain it, they could preach it to us. Something tells me that the disciples themselves, they were well-versed men, and and those who followed Jesus were well-versed men and women. And yet, as much as they could explain the things of rescue and Messiah, there's something they still needed to learn. I pray that you would teach us today and bring us along in our understanding, celebration, and life practice of what it means to live in your presence. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name. In the name of Jesus, amen. This passage presents us with the question of reality. What is real? What ought to have our attention when suffering and trial are pressing in on every side? What is real? What is of utmost importance in the world in which we live, particularly when reality is demanding your attention and specifically what it's demanding is your anxiety and your fear. Ray Ortland preached this passage a couple of weeks ago when Sandy and I were at an Acts 29 retreat in Colorado. And listening to Ray Ortland preach a passage with fervor and conviction that moved the pastors and their wives that were present on that day is a gift and a trial for a pastor who's supposed to preach this same passage just a couple weeks later. I just wanted to like record it and play it for you. But that's not what God's design is for us today. God's design for us today is that we would open up the scriptures, that I would share with you the word from the scriptures, but I also want to do what the scriptures call us to do, which is to encourage one another with the encouragement that we have received. And friends, I was encouraged. And so you will hear much from Ray Ortland as well, this morning. There are a number of things that he shared with us there that I want to share with us here. This passage, particularly, and also Ray's sermon on this passage has been a true comfort for me and for many others as we've faced the many trials of not only this last year, but of even the last few weeks. In our passage, we're told that there are three great things. Now, I didn't make this up. This isn't me alliterating. This isn't me trying to come up with how can I say what the scripture says in a way that's memorable. The Holy Spirit, (laughs) through the gospel writer Mark, already did it for us. You can find the word great three times right here in our passage. The word is, is the Greek word mega, all right? This is a mega passage. This is a great passage, and there are three of them there. We have a great storm a great calm, and a great fear. We're going to begin together with the great storm. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took with him in the boat, just as they took him with them, just as he was, and the other boats were with him. So there's more than just one boat there. A great windstorm arose, and there it is. We have a great windstorm that catches all of these disciples in the boat with Jesus as well as all the other boats that are with them. 
by surprise. Mark's account here gives us more details than any of the other accounts. The Mark is known as a quick-paced, fast, short narrative accounts. He records for us more detail about this storm in this account in Mark than any of the accounts in Matthew or Luke. There's a lot of detail here, and I have to wonder why. Many have suggested that the reason why Mark records more details is that he's recording an eyewitness account of the fisherman Peter. We know that Mark traveled with Peter. There is a great deal of evidence that much of Mark comes through Peter's eyewitness account as an apostle, and it would make sense that Peter would say, hey, Mark, when you're getting this, you got to catch these details. This happened in my neighborhood. This happened where I boated. And he shares them with them. We're told that it's evening. That's an odd and ominous time for a storm. The fishermen normally did their fishing at night because it was tended to be a, a more calm time on the sea. A storm at night, though, while it's typically a calm time for fishing, is also a particularly disorienting time for a storm, right? We're told that It was on that day when evening had come that they went out on the sea. Jesus had been teaching among the people for days there on the shore, and now he casts off from the shore. It would seem likely you see Jesus do this a number of times where he's really retreating from the crowds. But we're told in verse 36 that there were many boats who were with him. Presumably, they're following him, just as the crowds often did on the shore. Now they're following him out to sea. And in our passage, there are two key descriptions of the storm itself. And I want to make sure that we see them. I want to get situated in the context of what is actually taking place, just as the gospel writer would have us do. A great windstorm arose, it says in verse 37, and the waves were breaking into the boat. It's not that there was a storm out there. You see, that's, that's scary, right? If, I, if I'm out on the water, which you won't even find me do very often, if I'm ever out on the water and there's a storm out there, I'm nervous. That's concerning to me. But that's not what this passage says. It says that the waves We're breaking into the boat. You see, that's where a storm out there breaks into a storm in here, you see. There's a storm in the boat. The second detail, so the boat was already filling. It's not just that there's a storm in the boat. It's that the boat is going to sink. I want us to pay attention to those two key details. They're given to us to notice and give attention to, the storm is real. Like it's actually a storm. This is not a passage that would make an error like we are so prone to do in our like otherworldly mindedness. To pretend like dangers, storms, sufferings, trials in this world aren't real. The disciples were really in a boat. They were really surrounded by a bunch of other boats. There was really a storm out there that was becoming a storm in here, and they were really going to sink. Like, sit there. That's the information we know. 
And friends, that information is true. Whatever this passage says, one thing it doesn't say is that there's nothing to be afraid of. And, and I wonder if sometimes when we're communicating, like, like, don't worry about it, Jesus is with us. There's waves in the boat and it's sinking. You see? It doesn't, it doesn't say there's nothing to be afraid of. Instead, the passage gives us descriptive language that describes a very real threat to their life and limb. The storm is real. And the disciples and presumably the other boats that are following them very well may perish if this is all that there is. And so, when the disciples go to Jesus in verse 38 with all the information that they have, true information. The Bible doesn't lie. There's really ways breaking into the boat. It really is starting to sink, right? They go in verse 36, 38, and they find him in the stern in the back of the ship, asleep on a cushion. They woke him and they say, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Teacher, do you not care? Given the evidence that is presented, a real storm and a sleeping master, he doesn't care. Jesus is in the midst of a dangerous, violent storm. But he's in the stern, in the back of the boat, where the seating is, and he's asleep. The disciples didn't just shake their heads at Jesus. (sighs) Jesus, he sleeps through everything. It's so dangerous out here, but he's always... You know, he always seems so calm. He just has this sort of spiritual calmness to him, doesn't he? Right? No. They woke him up. They woke him up because they were terrified. You know why they were terrified? Because they should have been terrified. Their boat is sinking. Who knows? Maybe they're even waking him up. You know, we we're told why they woke him up because they they're saying, don't you care that we're perishing? But maybe they have some concern that Jesus might perish in the back of the boat sleeping too. Their astonishment at the end of this passage makes it clear that they were shocked by the miracle. They expected, when they woke Jesus, to actually perish out there in that sea. But they did wake him. They did wake Jesus up. And they did appear incredulous that he would sleep through what they perceived as their collective impending doom. That's what reality told them was next. And that's what they went to go and tell Jesus. I want to pause and reflect for just a moment on one of the most important questions we should ask our minds and our hearts. Does Jesus care? Does Jesus care about reality? Remember, the storm is real. Does he care? Sometimes the comforts of the scriptures can feel like a sleeping Jesus. Have you ever done that? You're in the middle of a trial that like you can't, you have a hard time thinking without crying or without anxiety running through your your veins, you know? And you go to the word and you're reading and it says all these like comforting things. And you're like, are you paying attention, Bible? Psalms, Paul, spirits of God. 
Jesus? Are you sleeping? It can feel like God is referring to some sort of peace or rest or sleep that we just don't comprehend. Not in light of everything we have perceived thus far, which is a perishing boat in this particular case. In times of great trouble, when you read the scripture, does it ever feel like Jesus is sleeping? Does the presence of the Lord at all times feel like a shallow promise? He was there, but he's sleeping. Consider the scripture that was in the COVID update that went out this week. Philippians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. It goes like this. The Lord is at hand. Okay, good, good. Don't be anxious about anything. Okay, what? Don't be anxious about, like what about a storm where waves are coming over the edges of the boat and the boat is sinking? How about the Lord is present, he's sleeping in the back of the boat and we're gonna die? No, no. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, by the way, let your requests be made known to God. Okay, I, I get it. Don't be anxious. The, the call is to pray, to trust the Lord. But how does that work? How does that work if you're about to drown? How do you pray that prayer with thanksgiving, with impending doom? The passage continues in the next verse, Philippians 4, 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. It's like he read our minds. It's like the Spirit inspiring the Apostle Paul said, oh, no, no, no. No, I get it. I know what you're going to be thinking right now. Don't be anxious about anything. I don't get that. Yeah, I know you don't. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding up to present Given everything that we're seeing around us, given that we don't think Jesus would be sleeping right now, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's what that passage is saying. It doesn't say that the thing that you're anxious about isn't real. It's saying Jesus is in the boat. It said it at the beginning when it said the Lord is at hand. Your business is to get your mind and your heart in him. Because if he fails you, he is so, and we'll look at this in a little bit. Let, hold, let this claim sit for a minute. He has so linked his reputation and glory to our rescue, our final and complete rescue, that Jesus would be at the bottom of the lake too. He's at hand. He is with us all the way. So get your heart and get your mind in Jesus and trust whatever he does next. So pray to him. <laughs> Supplicate to him and give thanks to him. You see, the answer to the question of whether or not Jesus cares is not in what he does to calm the storm to rescue us from the trial. The answer to the question of whether or not Jesus cares is the fact that he's in the boat. That's how we know he cares. He's with them at all. 
He's with them in the boat. God is not aloof. He is with us and he has not forsaken us. How do we know we're going to make it through it? How do we know that ultimately, no matter what the circumstances look like, right now, in this very second, we will not perish because the Lord is at hand. Get your mind and your heart in that. Psalm 16, verse 3. This is how Ray opened his message. And it just sat over a room of exhausted pastors. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. That's the word of the Lord. The Lord delights in his saints and he calls his church his excellent ones. Get your mind and your heart situated in that reality in the boat. Jesus is sleeping, yes. The storm is real, yes. And those people in that boat are his excellent ones. And he delights in you, Peter. He delights in you, all you disciples who belong to him. There's another very great verse in the scriptures in a passage that I've referenced often of late. It's from 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 and following. It says, according to his great, you see it? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, the sleeping guy in the boat rose from the dead and you think a storm calming is a big deal. And all of this living hope is to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, I could add unsinking. It's all kept in heaven for you. His great mercy, great storm, absolutely. Great mercy by the one in the boat. Get your mind and your heart situated there. The trial is great, but so too is his great mercy. And the rescue that he has secured is absolutely guaranteed. We need to continue with our passage to see how the presence of Jesus actually works mercy among the disciples. But there is such a a, a fullness to the next great. The next great that we find in verse 39 is a great calm. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the wave and it, the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. You see, there is a great storm, but Jesus is a great calm. He didn't bring a great calm, he was sleeping. There's something about Jesus that surpasses understanding. Even after the disciples are are done with this episode, my guess is next storm they're not sleeping in the boat. There's something that Jesus brings to the table that is a calm. Jesus is sleeping and he's about to stand up and command the sea to sleep. How calm is Jesus? They have to actually wake him up to do that. Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. Now this is important because it's not some sort of gentle religious incantation. 
Like we're supposed to walk around making our fingers in some, you know, way, and, and now we're able to say, peace, be still. And now all of our troubles go away. And we know that because of the words that are actually there. Our translations, they have it right. There are two exclamation points in just two tiny little sentences. It is a commanding shout. The words and their meaning. And he uses two different words to say it. To say essentially the same thing. He says, be silent. And stay silent. The first is a a commanding word. And the second word is a word of finality. It's in the perfect tense. Remain that way. That when Jesus spoke, he meant something to the sea and its waves. Shut up and stay that way, R.C. Sproul says. The wind ceased and there was a great calm. See, when Jesus stands up and says the way it's going to be, it will be. And it's going to stay that way until he gives permission otherwise. It reminds me of the way that it is with God. Let there be light. And there was light. Let there be silence. And there was silence on the sea. What else ought we to expect from the creator of the universe sleeping in a boat? Whatever he does when he stands up is going to work. It's going to work, and it's going to be the right thing on the right day, and it's going to be that way as long as he's the creator of the universe. So the question for us, Jesus asks it, why are you so afraid? You see, the wind ceased in verse 39, and there was a great calm, and he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? I hope you're making the connection with me. Jesus is helping the disciples to make this connection. Why is it that the promise, the guarantee, and the reality of the presence of the Lord God of all of creation, and with all of his promise of redemption, why is the promise of the presence of the Lord feel like an empty hope? And friends, in that boat on that day, it wasn't the promise of the presence of the Lord. It was the real, physical, bodily presence of the Lord sleeping in the boat. Why does that feel like not enough? You see, we're in a storm. We're experiencing a great trial. The suffering is actually real. And God is with us. Emmanuel is real. The word itself, Emmanuel, God is with us, is one of the truths about reality that's present in the storm. He's promised to never leave us, never to forsake us. We remember this blessing every week that he would bless us and that he would keep us. Ray Ortland says, Jesus can calm any storm. Oh, and he can calm us down too. That's exactly what he does. He reorients reality. We're going to see that the disciples were actually quite upset. But he is reorienting and fashioning a calm in them that will carry them with a great boldness as witnesses to his presence. The disciples did the right thing by waking Jesus. 
They went to the right place. Their fear drove them in the right direction. And that's a tutor for us. Maybe one of the things that whatever storm, and I don't want to metaphorize the storm too much, but trials, they're real. Whatever trial we may be in, perhaps one of the things, perhaps one of the things that is happening in the midst of it is to drive us to Jesus and his presence. But they didn't completely grasp by faith all that they genuinely possessed by grace. I'm going to say it again. They didn't fully grasp by faith all that they actually possessed by grace. The band Beautiful Eulogy speaks one of my favorite words in lyricism. You've heard me say it many times before. It speaks of an order of benefits the genuine believer is entitled to. Entitled. The Lord has given us title, possession, and guaranteed reality of his presence by grace. It's a gift. It's done. It's his decision, and he chose to give it to you. It's called grace. If we find ourselves in the midst of a trial, we possess grace because we are objects of God's great love and God's great mercy. Are we taking possession? Are we holding to? Are we living in light of that reality by faith? Ray Ortland points to where is your faith? And he asked this question. I heard I'm like, well, I can think of a couple of things. He asks, what's wrong with drowning? <laughs> and not breathing is one of my biggest fears about drowning. What's wrong with drowning? And he says, what, what is it that you're truly afraid of? And now that one got me. I can name exactly what I'm afraid of about drowning. But what is it that I'm really afraid of? And he offered this challenge. When we die... Why don't we die by faith? Why don't we trust that the grace of God has gone nowhere if we perish in a storm? What if we were able to look at not only disaster, but at death itself and say, death, you are a temporary circumstance, sir. You are a light and momentary affliction. By grace, through faith, I have a possession of a living hope. Possessed. A gift. A gift that he keeps for me. What is it that we're truly afraid of? Jesus is about to reorient his disciples' fear from a passing circumstance to a divine reality. And we'll go there as well. Verse 41. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. First, there's a great storm, right? And then there's a great calm. There was a reality of a great trial, and then there was a, a great cause for anxiety. And then there was not. Right? Isn't that the story? There was a real thing, and then the real thing was gone. There's a thing to be afraid of, and the thing to be afraid of was gone. But one thing remains throughout the entire episode Jesus was there before the storm. 
Jesus was present in the midst of the storm and Jesus stands victorious after the storm. And friends, that's always true. Who then is this? We're gonna ask that question multiple times in Mark. It shows up repeatedly. It seems to be one of the central threads that runs through, especially the center portion of the gospel of Mark. Who is Jesus? You see, we can look at the raging trials. We can look at fearful circumstances. We can examine their details and can be confronted with impending doom. The gospel writer asks us to do that with him. But how these raging trials compare with the rest of reality? That's the essential question. How do real trials compare with the real Lord in the boat? Do we understand that there is more to our circumstances than what we see with our eyes and what we fear with our hearts? 2 Corinthians chapter 4 describes how it is that we might lose heart. Uh, we might not lose heart, though affliction presses at every side. I would encourage you, that'd be a, this is a great passage to write in your notes in the margin of this passage in Mark chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning at verse 16. So we do not lose heart. I'm paying attention. How do you not lose heart? How are we going to do this? Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. You hear that? Like, though you're going to drown, you're not going to drown on the inside. For this light, momentary affliction, and that light, momentary affliction that he's talking about is our outer self wasting away. So he's not talking about, like, nothing. He's talking about something. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's not that the storm isn't great. It's that if you compare that great with the greatness of our God, it's just beyond comparison. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. There's more to this universe than the storms we can see. The storms we can see are real, but they are not all of reality. Our culture tends to use the word spiritual to refer to the things that we think, that we feel, perhaps vague philosophies, but not with any sense that spiritual things are actually real actually reality, but this is not the biblical worldview. Our culture and community presses, show me the science. Show me empirical truth. Do some sort of repeatable, testable experiment under a human-controlled environment, and then I will believe the error is already present. Friends, we think we control way more than we do. You do a human-controlled environment for the test of creation of all things. It's the wrong question. And ultimately, it's the wrong process. We ought to ask not for what we can control alone. Storms matter and science matters. But we ought to ask what is real, though, whether it can be controlled by a scientist in a lab or not, what is real? I can tell you right now, the disciples in that boat and all the boats that were around them 
knew exactly what they saw. This whole passage is ripe with details of an eyewitness account. But the whole point of the last words of our passage is that there is no way on the planet that we could have a repeated instance of that kind of power by any other human in any kind of experiment. But it happened. And it was real. They were afraid. They encountered something greater than a windstorm that they'd encountered many times before. They encountered God. What Jesus did here right in front of their terrified eyes and their pounding hearts is he demonstrated that we live in a universe that is seen and unseen. There's wind that presses upon the skin. They felt it that day. There were waves that overwhelm a ship. They were sinking in it that day. But there is a God and he rules by the power of his word. And friends, that's not physics, but it is reality. We live in a world that is seen and not seen. How do we know that there is that which is unseen? Because our God by the grace of his revelation, and specifically the revelation of Jesus Christ, causes the unseen to burst forth before our eyes in astounding glory. We don't run scientific experiments on Jesus. We simply see him as he has revealed himself, and we are filled with great fear. Over the past few weeks at CP Coast, in Cape, and at CP Coast Palm Bay, Joel and Justin have preached from 1 John chapter 1. And it speaks about this seen-unseen revelation of Jesus Christ. It says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. Human interaction concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. The unseen word of life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. You know what they're talking about? The unseen God taking on flesh in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. They saw him. They bore witness to him. You see, it's astounding. It changes everything, but Jesus is visible and invisible. Jesus, God is spirit, and Jesus is God-made flesh. And they saw him, the very men who were in that boat that day. And the work of Jesus in his gospel His sacrificial death on a very real Roman cross, his victorious resurrection from the death, rising in the flesh, flesh that could be touched, has made known to us the glorious spiritual reality of redemption and forgiveness of sins. I can't touch forgiveness of sin unless somebody's seen Jesus, unless someone has borne witness to his nail scarred hands and has borne witness to the means by which you and I might be forgiven. You see, our greatest trial is not a windstorm with all of its ominous 
waves. Our greatest trial is unseen and too often ignored. You and I are sinners before a holy God. The torrent of his righteous judgment that ought to crash down upon us is real. But his grace has been manifest before our very eyes through the person and the work of Jesus who is sleeping in a boat that day and rose to demonstrate his glorious power. The Lord has stood face to face with sin and death and declared by his mighty work and his word, be silent, shut up, you grave, and stay there forever. My, my saints, they're the excellent ones in the land. And he rejoices in his church. One more time, Ray Ortland says, we don't need to survive the storm. In fact, one of these days we won't. We've got quite a millennia, multi-millennia history of people not surviving storms of a variety of kinds. One of these days, the reality of our mortal bodies, wasting away, as the passage says, is going to catch up to us. But our hope was never in our mortal flesh, was it? Our hope is in the grace, the gift of eternal life in Christ who rose from the dead in the flesh. With Christ, and that's the whole point. Is the storm real? The answer is yes. And it is a great storm. Is Jesus with us? And the answer is yes. And his very presence by his work and word has brought a great peace. We would do well to live our lives in fear of him. But in light of his great mercy, our fear transforms to awe and wonder, which a couple weeks ago we discovered is worship. Our fear, in light of his great mercy, becomes worship. We live in a unique moment. Not unique in all of history. Unique in my lifetime. There's an actual, real, great, stormy, global trial. I'm used to being in difficult circumstances, looking around for some expert, some rock, some encourager to help me through it. You guys are kind of like that? You know, you hit something, it's hard, and you look around and say, somebody give me a hand, and then somebody gives you a hand, and it's okay. But right now, we're all underwater. We're all struggling. It doesn't seem like there's anywhere to look, and that person says, it's okay, I got this. It was that way for the fishermen in that boat. I know it often works that way in my household. I'm, also, I'm often having a hard time, and Sandy's the strong one. And then Sandy's having a hard time, and and in that moment, I can be the strong one. But what if we're both exhausted and suffering? Perhaps that's one of the reasons why this story is so powerful. Hear this. Peter was an expert fisherman. Right? He'd been through storms before. It would seem likely that when the disciples faced difficult circumstances while boating with the other disciples, their friends, and Jesus... That while they were boating, Jesus could sleep in the back of the boat. And if they hit a hard time, what would they do? Hey, Peter, give us a hand. So, uh, not sure what to do about this. It's kind of getting rocky in here, don't you think? Peter would say, that's okay, I've been through worse, right? And he'd tell them what to do, and they'd batten things down or whatever in the world you do on a boat. And everything would be okay. And they're like, oh, we did whatever we do on a boat. 
But on that day, Peter with all the disciples were crying out, we are perishing. What do you do when there's no experts to look to for help? Jesus calls us to faith in himself, faith in the Lord and the Lord alone, not just faith when everything else fails. This is a privileged moment in which we live. In this moment, we are forced to the situation that is actually our every single day's reality. The moment in which we live, in which there doesn't seem to be any experts coming to the rescue, where it seems like everybody's confused and exhausted. It's a privileged moment because it's revealing to us what has always been true. May this moment, when everything else looks like it's failing, when there seems like there's nowhere to turn for help, let's leverage this moment to discover how we're supposed to be living the whole of our lives by faith, situated in the mind and the heart of our loving, great, merciful Savior. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent the Son. And we, the church, through the witnesses that you have appointed for us, who have recorded their account for us, have seen him, known him, touched him, walked with him, been rescued by him, rebuked by him, lived in fear of him, and were captured with great boldness at his resurrection. I pray that this testimony, this gospel, Mark, would become for us the expert to which we look, that your spirit, inspiring these words, would buoy our hearts that it would not seem like vain hope, that the Lord is at hand. We need grace for that. Lord, we expect grace because you've chosen it. Grace is your decided gift for your church. We trust in you today. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.